podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Have you been listening? Do you know what sport we're actually playing? Whoa, 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 whoa. I was number nine. Don't be putting me down at number 11. Back in the day, I defeated Dwayne The Rock Johnson twice. The Paralympics almost has more power than the Olympics ever will be. I'm not really a fun kind of guy. doesn't really like people. Come on then, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Hello boys, Tom After, how are you today? I'm fine, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you Tom? Great, thanks. Technowood School is a school for children and young adults with autism. We have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Before we start, I just wanted to give a shout out to the Daily American Podcast. This is another great podcast where Dan interviews people from around the world who have very interesting stories of struggle in life, overcoming challenges and battling through tough times. So please go and check out the Daily American Podcast. And joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a former Australian rugby player He was capped 86 times for Australia and won the World Cup in 1991 and then again in 1999 as captain. Welcome to the podcast, John Eels. It's a true pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem. Thank you so much for joining us. So we start off the podcast, John, with a few quickfire questions that Tom is going to ask you. So whatever pops into your head, just give us your answer. Take it away, Tom. Favourite holiday destination? Oh, I'm going to say uh, Vomo Island in Fiji. It's a beautiful place. It just not not far from um, uh, not far from um, from Nanny, and and it's a you know it's just such a beautiful place. Favorite food? I I, I eat well and I eat a lot. Um, I'm going to say Italian because my grandmother came from the north of Italy. And uh, and she made her own pasta. I learned how to make my own pasta. She died in 2000, so a long time ago now, but it's, uh, I still make her pasta sometimes. And so Nonna's pasta. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? <laughs> Who is the most famous? Well, the most important person in my phone book, because that might be a different question. That's probably my wife. Um my, my the most famous, I don't know. Uh, oh, Will Greenwood's in my phone book. Will Greenwood, I'd say. Yeah. So we had him on the podcast a few weeks ago. Great guy. Spoke really, really well. If you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? Oh, jeez. <laughs> We're t- tough lives. questions on this podcast, John. There's no, yeah, no, they are. <laughs> no, I've had no warning for any of this. Like uh, trade lives with anyone. Um, you know what it'd be? I'd, I'd be a rock star, I think. You know, imagine being Mick Jagger or someone like that. I mean, I probably wouldn't quite be able to carry a stage like Mick Jagger. Right, Tom, we'll leave it there. Should we crack on with the sporting questions now? So, after. Okay. Who were your sporting hero and do you always always want to be a rugby player? It's a good question, after. Um, I... My sporting heroes were probably mainly cricketers, actually, when I was growing up. They were the cricketers and rugby players. And, and in Australia, we had, there was a guy called Dennis Lilly who was a fast bowler, and there was a batsman called Greg Chappell. And for me, 
you know, they were my favourite cricketers. Dennis Lilly was a, a man's man. He just looked like he was a guy who all Australian young men wanted to be and boys wanted to be. And then there was, um, in rugby, there were three guys and uh, one was, and they all captained Australia at different stages. One was Mark Lyon and he was an ophthalmologist, so an eye surgeon and uh, played number eight for Queensland and for Australia. There was Tony Shaw who played number six or seven for Queensland and Australia and also my club brothers. And there was Paul McLean who was a who was a 5'8", uh, number 10. And, yeah, that, that would probably – I know you asked me for one, but there's five that I, I just loved growing up. Too many to choose from. And just to mention cricket there, I, I read that you were a big cricket fan growing up and, what well, still are now. Ashes series is – it's such a fantastic series and it's, it's coming up this this Christmas time, isn't it, We're in Australia. From our point of view, I can't see it, but let's hope for England win. But I don't see it <laughs> myself. <laughs> yeah, I'll, be, um, I'll definitely be cheering for Australia. I, I love the cricket. I, I love watching it. I Look, I don't watch much 2020 and I, I don't watch many one-days, but I love the test matches. And I've, I've actually followed, and even if I don't watch it, I really enjoy following a cricket series. And I... I was so disappointed when that last test was cancelled this week between India and um, and England because what a fantastic series that's been. And mm. you know what? At the end of the day, sometimes I don't even mind who wins it, even when Australia are playing. If I can, I'd rather watch a great, a brilliant series that we lose than, than a series that we win easily any day of the week because I just love that contest. And when when test cricket can go deep into the fifth day, it's pretty special. You started your career at Queensland Reds. What was it like to make your debut and play for them? Yeah, Tom, it was, I was, I was very, I was young. I think I was, was I nine? I think I was still 19 when I first played for the Queensland Reds. And I remember we were playing over in Christchurch in New Zealand and I was on the bench. And um, in those days, you didn't when you were on the bench. You, you didn't necessarily get a run. These days, they tend to put everyone from the bench on the field at some stage. In those days, unless someone was injured, you didn't get on the field. And I remember John Connolly was our coach, and he coached at Bath for a while in England, and I think maybe Swansea as well. But he was he came down to the sideline with me. He said, "Bill Campbell's injured." He said, "Mate, you're on." And I went on, and you know, I didn't. I couldn't believe that I was playing for the Queensland Reds. I never thought I'd ever play for them. And uh, here was this opportunity. And I really felt that I could die happy now, <laughs> even though after that, then I wanted to play again and again and again. <laughs> but uh, then I was pretty, it was a pretty amazing experience. And I just remember going out on the field and how fast the game was. It was faster than anything I'd ever been a part of before. It was physical and fast. But I came off the field just feeling how good was that? And you went very quickly from making your debut for them to making your, your debut for Australia in a World Cup year as well. What was it like to make your debut for Australia? Was the, the jump from the Queensland Reds to Australia a huge jump for you at such a young age? It was a jump, and that was the following year in 1991. And my first test was against Wales, and I'd never played for Australia before, maybe in under-21s. and uh, But this was... It was such a big moment. I spoke about how much it meant to me to play for the Reds. Again, I never thought I'd play for Australia. And when I pulled on the jersey in the change room, I, I didn't pull it on before that. I didn't try it on. I just pulled it on in the change room. 
went out onto the field and the first thing you do is you stand in front of the crowd and you sing the national anthem. And for me, before every test, that was such a special and such an important moment because that was the moment where you were recognising with yourself that you had the chance, that you were the best player in your position in the country that day and you were chosen to represent all of your country. And I never, that, that was a great honour, but it was also a great responsibility and I never took that for granted. I always felt, you know, I've got a job here to do that I can't let people down, I can't let myself down when I'm out there on the field. And and I think when when we sang the national anthem that day, I think I cried my whole way through the national anthem because I was so so emotional at this this opportunity. But uh, yeah, it was it was a pretty special day. Uh, were you nervous to walk into the dressing room? Yeah, after I was, I was very nervous that day playing for Australia. The bus the bus took us from the hotel and we. We drove through and we were playing this game at the Queensland home ground called Ballymore. And you drive through the car park of Ballymore and all the people are having a barbecue and having a drink out in the car park and they start running up to the bus and yelling and waving. And and I was just sort of getting really excited and but nervous. And, and then we walked into the change room. Maybe then we walked out onto the field for a second, but we walked into the change room and you're thinking... You know, in in an hour's time, I'm going to be playing for Australia for the first time in my life, and uh, and that was it was a funny feeling, and and you do get nervous, and I think it's in life it's it's important to get nervous, it's important to get used to getting nervous in those circumstances, and I remember in that moment there was one guy called Tim Gavin and another guy called Phil Kearns. They came up to me at different stages in the change room and you know, maybe patted me on my back, maybe put their arm around me and said, don't worry, mate, we're out there with you the whole time. We're there to support you. And I never forgot those words. And they were really comforting words for me at a time when I was nervous and I relaxed a little bit more uh, because I knew that I wasn't going out there alone. I was going out there as part of a team and part of a really good team. And that that made a difference for me. Is it true that the media nicknamed you nobody, but no one actually called you that? <laughs> you guys are really well researched for this uh, <laughs> for this interview. It is true. Uh, someone in the team we used to have an end of season um, gift giving session, and you, you'd usually buy something that would that would make fun of you. You'd make fun of the person you're giving it to in a fun way. And someone, it was Mitch Hardy, and he bought me what was uh, a Mr. Men book, and it was the Mr. Perfect book as a joke. And David Campisi, it was his last tour, and and he said, oh, that's ridiculous, nobody's perfect. And then he thought he was really funny, so he told someone from the press what he said, and then the person in the press said, and they call him nobody because nobody's perfect. But as you said, Tom, nobody ever called me that. But that's the... uh, (laughs) That's what they started to write in the press. And I suppose it's not the worst nickname you can have. I mean, I don't really like it. And nobody really calls me that, but it's it could have been worse. Yeah, so definitely. The, it was over in England, wasn't it? I imagine lots of well, Australian players have a lot worse nicknames from the English media than, than that. So, Yeah, <laughs> true. Just before we move on, we just want to share some of our fantastic messages that we've received 
from from our listeners. And our first one comes from Hugo in Berlin, Germany, who says, what a great podcast. It is the first podcast I've heard that's hosted by autistic children and it's a breath of fresh air. Keep up the great work. You're doing a great job. And our next message comes from Sophie in Leeds, who says, what an amazing podcast. I don't know how you all how you get all these amazing guests or you're on your show but please keep them coming you're doing a brilliant job brilliant thank you so much for your messages and reviews and and please keep them coming you can give us a review on our social media or by finding us on apple podcast or spotify or google podcast john i just want to ask you about the 1991 world cup so you had some very tough games especially in the knockout stages I think you beat Ireland by a point in the quarters. And then obviously you faced your, your rivals, New Zealand, in the semis before beating England in the final. What are your memories of that tournament? And again, being such a, a young man at 21, playing in, playing in such a big tournament, what are your memories of that? Yeah, I remember because the first World Cup ever was just four years before that in Australia and New Zealand. And I remember watching that, but never believing. I was I was in my last year of school, never believing that I would be playing in the final or playing at all in the next World Cup, but then playing in a final against England at Twickenham. Um, it was so part of me, I was pinching myself all the time. And you know, you go through funny thoughts in your head at different stages of when you're an athlete, and not always the bravest thoughts or or, or whatever, but I remember getting some notes from some of my mates who were in the pubs back in Australia watching the games at one o'clock in the morning and uh, they were telling me how much fun they were having and part of me almost wanted to be back there in the pubs watching the games, having the fun with them. Now, it was such a stupid thought because I was actually over there uh, having a lot of fun and and loving it. But it's, you know, you, you go through these, you know, these different emotions through a tournament like that when you think you're, you're close to losing against Ireland and then all of a sudden you beat them and and then you beat New Zealand in the semi-final and you're playing the home nation at their home ground at Twickenham in England. And and that was such a hard game. And I talked about how how I a couple of teammates relaxed me in that um before my first test. In the final, I had a similar story. Like you're running out onto the field in the World Cup final, there's a lot going through your heads. And and you've got, you, we, we were kicking off, I think, after the national anthems, we'd met the, uh, I think the Queen, we had met the Queen, which was a very special moment. And then we're about to kick off and I'm, I'm over near the sideline and getting ready to chase the ball. I've got the crowd basically, you know, this far away, I could reach out and touch the crowd and they're singing Swing Low, Sweet Chariot as we're about to do this, is this wave of excitement. And there's a lot of thoughts go through your head. I remember looking across the field and seeing Nick Far jones my captain. And Nick was our, our halfback. And I looked across at him. He, he saw me at the same time, and he just smiled. And he just had this lovely, relaxed smile on his face. And I thought, well, if he's relaxed, I should be relaxed as well. And it was just the perfect the perfect action at, the, at, that, the, at that moment which just enabled me to get into the moment to to relax and throw myself into the game. And, yeah, it's hard to describe those little moments, but they're so important. What was your best moment from that World Cup? Best moment after I was probably the final whistle 
of, uh, of, of the referee because it was such a close game. You know, 12-6, England score, and then we've got to go into extra time and anything can happen in extra time. So, so when the referee blew that whistle, and I think Tony Daly, our front rower, who scored our try that day, he was the closest to me. We both put our hands up. We both hugged each other. But there was that just that moment, which is this realisation that all the work you've put in has come to fruition and you've just won the World Cup. You're, you're part of the best team in the world in your sport. There's no, not many moments better than that if you're, if you're a sports person. The final was played in England. Were you confident going into the final against England? I think you're, you're confident about your own ability, but you always have in the back of your mind, you know, here's a great team. They've got some incredibly talented individuals. Talented individuals can do great things in, 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 in any given moment. And, and so you're always alert that you need to be better than them. You need to beat them in every moment of that game, which you're not going to do. They're going to win some moments. You're going to win others. But you know that you've got to compete in every single moment. And and I think it it doesn't stop you being nervous. It doesn't stop you um, you thinking that this may not end as, as you want it to end but it forces you to really focus and, and take every moment as it comes out there on the field. So, so I think the nerves are a good thing because it, sh- it says that this means something to you, but you need to use the nerves in a positive way and start focusing on what you're going to do in the game. We're going to skip, skip forward four years to the next World Cup in, in 1995 in South Africa. South Africa mm-hmm. won that tournament, and I think it's probably fitting that they did with everything that was going on in South Africa at the time. Looking back at the World Cup from your point of view, I think you got knocked out. Was it the quarterfinals? What had changed maybe, or was it just unlucky, or what had changed from the 1991 team to the 1995 team that maybe you didn't quite reach as far as possibly you could have? Yeah, look, I think, um, I think Adam, you knew full well that we got knocked out in the quarterfinals, and you were very kind not to say who knocked us out in the quarterfinals. It was actually England. Well, um, I'm, I'm, I'm Welsh, John, so... Promise you, I'd much rather Australia win and England win. Oh, well, that's good. That's good to hear. I'm not sure about Tom and after, Ignore but... Two. Ignore these no, two. No. England supporters? Oh, jeez. Yeah, look, I'd back the Welsh against the English as well. But uh, <laughs> but it's... Uh, look, I, I think the difference was that... Uh, look, we, we had a lot of talent in both those teams. I think in 1995, in hindsight, we're probably carrying a couple of people that were, you know, a little bit injured. I think we went into a World Cup. We played. We weren't quite ready in that opening game against South Africa. We had focused that whole off-season on how we were going to win the World Cup. I think they focused that whole off-season on how they were going to beat us in the first game of that World Cup. And that really specific focus that they had and the you know, the will to win they brought out onto the field that day in front of Nelson Mandela, um, I think was pretty, you know, gave them a big opportunity. And once we lost that first game, it made it harder for us to get through. You know, we had to play England in a quarterfinal and and that was, you know, that was a big challenge. And, you know, there wasn't much between us and England. And that day it was a Rob Andrew 
you know, what an outstanding player he was. It was a Rob Andrew field goal from 40 minutes that gave them that victory against us. And so, you know, the games can go on these fine lines. On that day, we're on the wrong side of the fine line. You know, the year before we were undefeated, we beat New Zealand, you know, in a, in a, in a great test in Sydney. And it probably, I think, affirmed to us that we were a very good team and maybe maybe took a little bit of our focus away on exactly what we had to do to win that World Cup. In 1996 and 1997, you lost lots of games in the Tri-Nations. What had changed from a successful team in the early 90s to a team that was struggling in the mid-90s? It might have been the captain that took over <laughs> in 1996. <laughs> Yeah, which which was me for those who don't realise it. Um, look, we we had a lot of talent, uh, but we we didn't have as much direction as we needed through those couple of years. There was a fairly big turnover of players. We were an unsettled team. I think from week to week, it was hard to say. Yeah, these whereas probably the previous couple of years, there might have been eight, nine, or ten people that were almost certain selections any week. And we had that wonderful stability in the team. You're always building on that, that team and you're getting better as a team each time, whereas probably 96 and 97, there wasn't as much stability. So you tend to, from week to week, you're trying to develop the cohesion rather than building on that cohesion. I think that was one of the factors. And honestly, I was jo- joked about it at the start, but I-, I wasn't a very good captain when I first came into the team. Yeah, there was a, I-, I lacked... Yeah, I had some skills, and I, I but I, I probably lacked the confidence to really charge it headlong into that role. And it wasn't until I did it badly a few times that I started to um, challenge myself and realise, you know, where I needed to improve. And then I worked hard at being better at that. Um, I worked hard at seeking some really difficult input as to why I wasn't very good for, from people I really trusted. And I, I'm always thankful to those people for being really honest with me. And some of them were my teammates, some of them were among the coaches, and some of them were just my friends who I really trusted who, you know, to give me some fearless and frank feedback that I was able to take on board and and get better in that role. So what sort of, of captain were you, John? Were you a, a shouter? Were you a motivator? Were you like a leader by example? bit of everything what sort of captain would you say you were I, I think you had to be a bit of all of that um I, I think when you become ultimately what what held me back was not willing to be myself as much as I needed to be I think I was out on the field and you play a game and you you do need to lead by example but there are times when you need to lead by you know through intellect or or through what you say um there's times you need to lead by bringing other people up to, to, to be better leaders in the team as well. So I think as you become more comfortable in the role, you become more comfortable in failing too. And, and I think by saying that, I mean you become more comfortable to try things and to risk, uh, to, you know, to do things that are a little bit riskier, perhaps a little bit different. And if you ultimately want to go from being fourth or fifth in the world to being number one in the world, you're not going to be able to do that by just 
doing things exactly the same as the number one team's doing it. Because if you do that, yes, you may be able to replicate them, but if they're any good as a leader and if they're any good as being the best team in the world, by the time you are able to replicate what they do, they're going to be better again. So to go from being fourth or fifth or sixth in the world, you need to take a a bet in some ways. You need to say, okay, this is what they're doing, but how is rugby going to be played in in six or 12 months' time? And what do we need to be doing to be the team that's going to change the way the game's played or the team that's going to be the best at doing X, Y, or Z? And we were fortunate through that time from 90 the end of 97 onwards, to have a coach come in, Rod McQueen, who really took that long-term perspective, but new results in the short-term mattered as well. And he started to take some risks and do things a little bit differently. He really challenged me as a captain that I needed to be different in how I took these things on. And, And I think the combination of Rod and I working well and closely together uh, really made a difference. The Henshaw's Insurance Group is one of the top 100 independent insurance brokers in the country and is here to bring you peace of mind. We've been in business for over 50 years and have offices in Newport, Shrewsbury and Stafford. Our 45 plus strong team deals with both business and personal insurance and we offer a free, no obligation, consultations and quotations. So give us a call today. We have a question from a listener who's got in touch with the podcast, John. And if anyone has a question that they would like to ask us or for a future guest, then please contact us on social media by searching TWS Sports Podcast. But our question today actually comes from a gentleman in Perth who's called Alan. And he asks, would you like to see Australia, South Africa and New Zealand merge together like the Lions do and tour the UK? I think it would be interesting. It, it wouldn't have the same heritage. I think it would be just as difficult bringing all those three different cultures together because you know, we have some similarities, but we are quite different. And that's one of the challenges of the Lions every four years. Um, I don't think world rugby needs it on a regular basis, but it might be interesting to do it occasionally. I think if you try to do it every four years, it might be fitting too much into an already very full calendar. And you're trying to manufacture in a short space of time, what the Lions have done over 100 years or however long since they first played. Yeah, I agree. What I would like to see, though, is, is maybe it's a one-off game, Southern Hemisphere v Northern Hemisphere. I think that would be a very interesting game. Yeah, look, I think it would be interesting. I think at the moment, you know, South Africa are the world champions. They just beat the British and Irish Lions. What a great series that was. Um, but... Uh, you know, New Zealand are playing pretty, pretty amazing rugby at the moment. I think there'd be a fair few New Zealanders in that team at the end of the day. Going into the 99-1999 World Cup as, as captain, did you feel prepared as a team heading into that World Cup? Yes, we did, because we'd been through some pretty tough years in 95, 96 and 97 and we started to emerge as a team and really mature as a team. And, and you talk about preparation. Preparation for a World Cup in some ways starts four years before and in other ways starts four weeks before. And you need to get both right. You need to get a few of those long bets right 
and then you need to get a lot of the short short bets right. Um, and I think some of the longer bets we made on, on personnel with some of those changes, if you look at the tough years of 96 and 97, what I'm really proud about of the 99 team was that no, no one that played in the World Cup final made their debut after 1997. So all of those players had the experience, the really tough experiences, the really tough you know, downtimes of Australian rugby. And then we came through that. And with that team that some people said was one of the worst teams Australia ever had, we became one of the best teams that Australia ever had. And being part of that transition from being not so good to being a great team, you know, was something that was very special. So going into the World Cup, you never think you're going to win it. You never assume you're going to win it. You never relax and say, yes, we're going to win this. But you know that if you do things well and you get your share of luck along the way, that you're going to have a chance of winning it. And we just wanted to make sure that we gave ourselves the best chance of winning it. I remember that World Cup. That was, um, I'm from South Wales, so I went to a few of the games at the Millennium Stadium and watching them games was just fantastic. And that really got me, that really got me into sport and, and rugby. And I just remember the, the atmosphere of the games and the atmosphere around Cardiff was absolutely fantastic. But moving on to, to your kind of games and to your semi-final, you played South Africa and went to extra time. So it was obviously a very, very tough and challenging game. And then France beat New Zealand, which I, I presume everyone probably thought New Zealand would win. So what are kind of your memories of, of South Africa and then that week building up to, to the final? Yeah, the South African game was an incredible game. No tries scored, a fair few points scored, but one of those, one of those really just tightly fought games. There was nothing between the two teams right throughout. And I think it's it was a special game, an important game for us because it showed that you know we could come from behind. Um, we could also have a team come from behind force us into extra time with the penalty goal right on on full time and then that we ran off the field and we spoke about that. We spoke about every time at half time at the end of a section, you run off the field, you you get together at half time and so we're ready for this at the end of extra time, ran off, spoke about what we had to do and then ran back out on the field and we put it together for that, you know, that, that, that period of extra time. So that gave us a lot of confidence going into the final. We thought we'd be playing against the All Blacks. People had started to prepare to play against the All Blacks. And then we we got back to Cardiff, as we knew we were playing in the final the following Saturday. And we got back to Cardiff um, and then watched one of the most amazing games of rugby anyone's ever seen. You know, the French were down by 14 points. They ended up winning by 14 points, I think. It was a stunning game. And by the end of it, we we're talking amongst ourselves saying, wow, like what an incredible game. But we all got a bit nervous because we thought, well, if the French can do that to the All Blacks, they can do that to us. We knew the All Blacks intimately. We knew how they played the game. We knew how hard it was to play against them. But we, we understood how they played the game. We hadn't played the French as much. And so we we're more wary of, well, how do you play against a team like this? What do we have to do? What will our tactics be? 
and we had to change a few things. And I think the busiest people overnight were the were the the video analysts because they had to stay up all night cutting up bits of the the French All Blacks game, cutting up bits of other French matches, so we could start to begin to understand what we thought the French would do against us and how we would counter that. Um, how good was it to fly the World Cup as a captain of Australia? Well done. So how good was it to lift the World Cup as captain of Australia? Yeah, it, it was it was pretty special. Um, yeah, once again, it's like the end of the, the game in 1991. You know, if there's a better moment than just when the final whistle goes, it's when you get to lift the cup. And because that is the the you know, that validation that this hard work you've been through as a team. And you know, I, I was I was lucky. I had I was fortunate I had the honor as the captain to to go up and get the cup, but it wasn't my cup, it was the team's cup and it was Australia's cup because we really felt, you know, representing ourselves, our families, that tight squad that we had, but then we were representing our country. And a lot of our countrymen were there that day in the crowd. And so this was their cup as well. We wanted to, you know, we were very proud to be able to lift it for ourselves, for our sport, but for all our countrymen there that day, but also all the fans and our country back home. You were also known for your goal kicking. Is it strange for a forward to be a kicker? Is it something you practised? I think it is a little bit strange these days in particular. You don't see it very often. Look, I practised it a lot. I had to practise it a lot. Um, And I was not often the number one kicker in the team, but I was often the second choice kicker. If the first kicker wasn't going so well, yeah, maybe I would step up. If they got injured, maybe I would step up. So it was something I did enjoy. I really enjoyed practising it. And, yeah, when I was young, when I was at school in your age, I would often just go down to the local park on my own or if I could find anyone to just grab balls at the other end and kick them back to me, I'd I'd go there for hours and just kick. And, and I really loved doing that. Um, and even at the end of training, and one thing I loved doing was actually on the the day before a test match or the Thursday before a test match, we'd have the chance to the kickers could go to the ground and have the chance to kick on Twickenham or kick on Murrayfield or kick on Ellis Park, and I would always go to that session. You know, it was our day off, but I just loved being able to go to the ground, and it was. It, I imagine as a as a golfer to be like being able to play at Augusta or something like that as a as a goal kicker, not great goal kicker, but someone who enjoyed kicking a bit um, and loved doing it for for fun. To be able to go onto these grounds when there's no one there around you and just to place the ball around the, these grounds and have a few shots at goal that was pretty special. But and moving on to your your retirement. From the game, John, did you did you did you know it was time? Some people say they they woke up and they, they knew it's time to retire. And did you ever maybe want to step into more of a coaching role or anything like that when you retired? No, I didn't. I didn't. Never did wanted to coach. You know, it wasn't my thing. Um, I loved the game, loved playing it, but I was ready to finish. The reason I played nineteen nine, sorry, two thousand and one, I probably would have retired the year before, but I desperately wanted to play against the British and Irish Lions. And because I 
they played in 1989. Uh, I was still playing Colts rugby there under 19 rugby. So I didn't get the opportunity to play them. So to be able to play a test series against them, and it was the only thing that our team hadn't done. We hadn't beaten the British and Irish Lions in a series. Australia had never done that. So it was a very pointed goal for our team over that period of time. Uh, and, and so to be able to be a part of that was pretty special. And I generally don't know the answer. What was? Did you win that series or did the Lions win? Uh, we won. We won. We lost the first test uh, pretty badly in Brisbane, and then and then we won the uh, the second in Melbourne, and we won the third in a very close test in Sydney. You must have seen lots of funny pranks and jokes when playing rugby. Have you got any funny stories to tell us? Well, funny stories. We we had we had. Uh, There'd be a lot. Do you remember a guy by the name of Tim Horan? You might not remember him, but but I'm sure Adam will. And he was yep. a great player. And we had another centre in our team. They both they played together from when they were kids and then they played in World Cup together in 1991. Jason Little was his name. And Tim played number 12 and Jason played number 13. And... Um, and uh, and then Jason was on the bench in 1999. He ended up coming on the field and playing most of that game as well. But I think it was, and you look, I'm, I'm struggling to remember, but I can't remember if it was Jason or Tim. One of them, they played club rugby together as well. And one of them got a snake and put a snake in there in the other one's kit bag. So when they went to get ready for to play the game, you know, he's opened his bag. And he's seen this snake in his bag and he's just jumped back. And uh, so I think that was one. I wasn't in the sheds that day, but that was one of the funny ones. We had a guy called Damien Smith who was a winger and and he used to do his hair in the change rooms before before he played the game. That was quite funny to watch that. But, uh, look, there, there, there was a lot of funny moments. I hope it wasn't a, a big poisonous snake. No, I don't think it was one of Australia's most deadly. I think it would have been a a um, carpet snake or what do they call it, like a a green tree snake or a carpet python or something like that. And coming on to Australia rugby today, what are your kind of thoughts on on the rugby team currently and moving forward to the next World Cup? Yeah, there's a few players in the Australian team I just love watching play. Uh, And if I think of someone like a Michael Hooper, I I don't think there's any better footballer than Michael Hooper in the world. Uh, He... He's so talented, but he just keeps going and he's a, he's a great captain. This weekend against South Africa, he'll become the most capped Australian captain ever. Last weekend he played uh, his 59th test as captain, which equaled George Gregan's record. And this weekend he'll break that. And, yeah, he's really an you know, incredible player. I think we've got a lot of good young talent coming through. We need to become more consistent in how we show that talent. And I think... I think we can do that. Um, so I'm pretty excited about this team and what they can do. Brilliant. And moving on as well, we mentioned at the start of the podcast, this, well, your summer is the the Ashes. Give us some predictions. What are your, what are your predictions for the Ashes series? For the Ashes? Look, I think a 3-2 victory for Australia would be pretty special to watch. Um, England always find it a bit harder coming out here. Um, they've got some great competitors, some very talented players. Um, 
Australia, the Ashes probably more. Yeah, the, I don't look. I think it's hard to say, but I, I look. I just get the sense it could be a close series, but um, I hope it is. But I think Australia will win. I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much, John, for taking the time to chat with us today. We really enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Look, thank you very much, Tom, and thank you, Raftar. Your, your questions were, were both excellent. You know, I got I got a lot out of it. They really challenged me, some of those questions. And thanks, Adam, for, for also hosting. It's it's really an honour to, to be involved in the podcast. Um, it's wonderful what you're doing. And then uh, keep it up. I look forward to, uh, to listening. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine. Sports Social Podcast Network.